Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, we've had a very interesting journey these last few weeks uh, exploring what happens after we die. And I guess uh, this is going to be our final installment on that subject, but it remains a very relevant subject, doesn't it? It's relevant for every one of us. You know, before we get started, there's a story that occurred to me. You and I were talking about large versus small audiences just before we went on the air here. And I was thinking about a circuit-riding preacher one time that had these churches that he would go to. They were way out in the ranch country. And one time he came to this church, and only one cowboy showed up. And so the circuit-riding preacher asked, well, since there's only one person here, do you think we should go ahead and have the service? The cowboy said, well, if I take my feet out to the cattle in the pasture there in winter when there's snow on the ground and only one steer shows up, I'm still going to feed him. Pastor said, you're right. So he proceeded to preach a full hour-plus-long sermon as well as the rest of the service. And when he was done, he asked the cowboy, well, what did you think? Well, it's like I said, Pastor, when... Only one cow shows up out in the field. I'm still going to feed him, but I'm not going to dump the whole load. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, we've been talking about this subject of death and dying, a subject that, as you mentioned just before we started, is as relevant today as it has ever been because we are all facing death, some of us sooner, some of us later. This will be the last of five messages on the subject. The first message, we looked at the question of heaven. We saw that the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, clearly teach that there is life after death, that there is a heaven that God has prepared for us. In the second message, we looked at the state between when we die and when the resurrection takes place. And our conclusion was that we are with Christ. And we are in a better state than we are now, but it's not a complete state. We are there as a spirit without a body. And that'll be incomplete. It won't be complete until we're reunited with our resurrection bodies at the resurrection. In the third message, we asked whether hell is for real. And we saw that, yes, indeed, the scriptures teach about hell and Our Lord, whom we sometimes call gentle Jesus, meek and mild, our Lord clearly spoke about hell. In fact, out of the references that we see to hell in the New Testament, over half of them are by Jesus himself. And then last week we looked at judgment. We saw the judgment seat of Christ where believers receive their reward. And we saw the great white throne judgment for unbelievers. And then we saw the nature of heaven itself. Part of what we concluded about heaven is that even though our desires are going to be changed and the worship of God will be more precious to us then than it is now, and we won't feel the constraints of time and space like we feel them today, nevertheless, heaven is not we don't think going to be just one unending church service or one eternal sing-along. And rather, 
there'll be things to do in heaven. We will be serving God. We will be worshiping him, but there will be work to do. We'll have, I think, skiing and other kinds of entertainment and so on. Things that we've enjoyed wholesomely here on earth, we will have even better in heaven. But there still remains this question. Each one of us is still facing physical death. We know death isn't the end, but each of us, unless Christ comes during our lifetime, each of us is sometime going to take our last breath and close our eyes for the last time. There was a man at church that we were attending in Montgomery. I'm preaching for my own couple little churches right now, but the pastor told us about this man a very fine Christian man who had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And the pastor was so impressed with this man's attitude. He said, the one thing that I pray for now is, God, help me to die well. And that's what we're going to look at here today. How do we die well? We read in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 13, And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from henceforth, yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. First of all, God is with us when we die. He takes us to a more blessed state. But I'm especially intrigued by that phrase, and their works do follow them. Notice it doesn't say their works precede them. We are not saved by our works. By grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. Nevertheless, our works have eternal significance. They have significance in that they affect history here on earth, but God looks up on them, and we are rewarded for our good works in heaven. Heaven, we don't get to work, get to heaven by our works. But when we get there, we are rewarded for our works. Well, how then can we die well? The first thing is to recognize that death can occur at any time. Ryan, we may not even finish this radio broadcast. That's ominous. We have no assurance of that. <laughs> I'm thinking of a very good friend of mine, Colonel Tom Hemingway, a Marine Lieutenant Colonel. And he became the director of the Spring Canyon Retreat for Officers Christian Fellowship after he retired. But he did have very, very high blood pressure off the charts, I'm told. But... One morning, he and his wife, Sarah, a very fine lady, they were getting dressed in the bedroom, getting ready for the day and talking about the day. And anyway, Sarah said that she asked Tom a question and he didn't answer. And the next thing she heard was a thud as he fell on the floor. The doctor said he had a aneurysm in his brain and that... Very likely, he was dead before he even hit the floor. It can happen that fast. And you might say that's a real blessing to have it happen that way. And in a way, it is, although 
In some ways, too, we would like an opportunity to prepare for it. I believe that Tom and his soul was prepared. But I'm thinking about another man that I knew at our church in Montgomery, Alabama here, that he had just retired from his work and fine Christian man planning to spend much more time in retirement doing work for the church and so on. And he was killed in a car accident at an intersection. Mm. And I'm thinking about that man the night before as he went to bed. He didn't know that was going to be his last night on earth. Didn't know when he woke up it was going to be his last morning. In fact, as he approached that intersection, he had no idea that within a few seconds or at the most a few minutes, he was going to be in the presence of God. Again, I believe he was ready. But we need to be ready. Another thing to remember, though, is we think of a death like that, and we think of it as a life tragically cut short. But the thing to remember is that we die when God's plan for this life is finished. I'm thinking of another circumstance, a lady that, <coughs> young girl, I should say, in our world churches that we have been praying for for years and years, a teenage girl. She had leukemia and several other forms of cancer as well. And for several years, we were praying for her. And it seems like they'd be off to one hospital and that hospital would declare her cancer free. And we'd think that our prayers have been answered and that now she was going to be okay and would be able to live a normal teenage life again. And then a few months later, she'd be down with cancer and we'd think the end is only a few days away and over and over and over again. We saw this happening. And then finally she died. Tragic. At least that's the way it looks to us. But within God's plan, God took her life. The very moment that his plan for her here on earth was complete. And his plan for her in heaven was ready to begin. This we can be assured of. We will live until God's plan for us here on the earth is completed. And when it is finished, we will die, and if we are believers, we'll die and be with him. What that means for us is that if we are alive, and I trust that everyone who's listening to this message is alive, if we are alive, God still has a plan for our lives. He still has something that he wants us to do, or something that he intends to do for us. But we need to be prepared that death can occur at any time. And so that brings us to our second point. Settle the sin and salvation question. Settle it now. You don't know whether you may have that aneurysm within the next five minutes, or whether you might have a long, drawn-out death like this young girl, Kenzie Ray. We don't know those things. And so we need to settle that question now. We recognize, first of all, that we are sinners. 
and that as sinners we are powerless to save ourselves. Recognize that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins. And place our trust in Him, trusting Him alone for our salvation. The head of Moody Memorial Church in Chicago, Urban Lutzer, I think put it very well when he said that often we say that Christ will meet us on the other side. That is true, of course, but misleading. Let us never forget that he walks with us on this side of the curtain and then guides us through the opening. We will meet him there because we have met him here. So settle that sin and salvation question. Make sure that you are firmly trusting in Christ today. Third point I'd make here is settle accounts. First of all, financially, if you have just debts, go ahead and pay them. That'll be a lot easier than your executors having to deal with whether those are genuine debts or not when debts are presented and claims are presented to your estate. Pay your just debts now. Collect from those who owe you if possible. And if there are disputed accounts somewhere, try to get them settled. You'll be in a better position to do that now than your executors will after you die because you know the facts. They don't. But I don't just mean pay your debts in terms of financial things. Settle other accounts as well. If you have wronged anyone, seek their forgiveness. If anyone has wronged you, forgive them. If you are estranged from someone, reconcile with them. If you've just been drifted apart for the years, for example, I'll tell you what's happened to me and the last 10 years or so, and I'm 77 now, but I thought of maybe a high school or a college friend of mine and thought I ought to look him up. And so I Google him to try to find where he is, and I find out that he died a year or two ago. Wish I'd contacted him sooner. But when you think about somebody like that, do it. Reconcile. Think about that passage of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Fourth thing I'm going to mention here is have a last will and testament. In Proverbs 13.22, we read, A good man leaveth an inheritance for his children's children. There's one thing that I find kind of irritating sometimes, driving, especially driving through the national parks on these winding mountain roads sometimes, and there in front of me will be a camper going 30 miles an hour, and sometimes it'll have a bumper sticker on it saying, we're spending our children's inheritance. Well, you don't have to save money for them. They'll be able to make their own, and they may not use it the way you think you should anyway. Nevertheless, it is good to leave something for your children. And for your grandchildren, provide some stability for them if times when they may need it. Help to provide for a college education, which maybe they couldn't afford otherwise. And I'll just say one thing about college educations that 
A college education is not essential for success. In fact, I've known a lot of people gone into entrepreneur businesses and so on, done very well without college. If you want to go into one of the professions, of course, you may need college. But even there, when you looked at what some of the colleges are teaching today, how so many colleges today are nothing but training camps and left-wing brainwashing and woke ideology, why a good conservative Christian parent would pay thousands and thousands of dollars to send his child to that kind of brainwashing to turn his children against him and cause his children to think everything that he has stood for and taught them all his life is nonsense and wrong and evil. I just find a college that teaches in accordance with the principles you believe, and there are some. But nevertheless, it's a good idea to leave an inheritance for your children. And as far as a will is concerned, well, the state has already written a will for you. It is called the Laws of Intestate Succession. And every state has a law that says this is how a person's estate is to be divided if the person dies without a will. And it varies from one state to another. In Alabama, for example, the surviving spouse, if there is one, gets the first 50,000 of the estate and half of the remainder and the children get the other half. And there are other things that happen if there are surviving children, but no surviving spouse, the children get it all. If you are survived by both a spouse and your parents, but no children, the spouse gets the first 100,000 and half of the remainder, the other half goes to the parents. Now, when I describe all these things, that may be the way you want it. But if it isn't, you need a will. One of the things I suggest for a will, too, is, well, it's good to leave some things to your children and grandchildren and so on, or to your parents if you're single and, and your spouse, of course. Nevertheless, consider leaving something to causes you believe in. We have three children, and the way we've set things up right now, we've set up our state so that each of our three children will receive one quarter of our estate, and the remaining quarter will go to various churches, charities, Christian organizations, conservative causes, things like this that we respect. And that's just the percentage that we've chosen. You may decide to make it less or make it more, but I encourage you to think about leaving a certain portion of your estate to carry on the things you believe in. Next thing I'm going to suggest here, and this is the fifth, is have a living will. Sometimes we call that an advanced directive. What's going to happen when, if you're in, let's say, if you're comatose, if you're on life support, do you want to stay on life support? Or do you want to be cut off if it's a situation where Let's say the doctors have determined to a reasonable medical certainty that you are terminally ill and there is no realistic, no reasonable possibility that you could revive. Do you want to continue in that state? Or do you want to be taken off life support and just allow God and nature to have their course? I'm not telling you what the right thing to do is there. I can tell you this, I am very strongly pro-life. 
I'm on the board of Lutherans for Life, and I've supported the pro-life cause ever since I was a high school kid. However, does that mean that if I am comatose, terminally ill, that I should have my entire estate consumed and say, $1,000 a day of being on a respirator instead of the money going to places where it could do some good just so that I can stay there in a vegetative state for a little longer? I don't think being pro-life means that we have to do that. But you have to decide that for yourself. But consider the difficulty otherwise. If you don't have an advanced directive, and you're in that situation, first of all, the doctors are going to be going to your loved ones and saying, what should we do? And they're going to be at a loss to know what to do. Well, what would you, Uncle Joe, what would Grandpa Joe have wanted? I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm not sure what he, what he wants us to do here. I was confronted in the base exchange there at Maxwell Air Force Base a couple of months ago. A lady saw I was wearing a cross and asked if I was a retired chaplain. And anyway, so she proceeded to talk to me. Her father had died recently. He was comatose, and she decided to let him go. And her brothers and sisters were so angry at her, you murdered our father. Well, she doesn't see it that way. And I don't either. But, again, a living will on that man's part, an advanced directive, as we sometimes call it, that could have eliminated all doubt in that matter. If you don't have that, just consider what a dilemma you're going to be putting your loved ones in when, or I should say, if you are ever in that state. Make sure you have that. And that not only make sure you have it, Make sure people know where it is. By the way, don't keep it in a safety deposit box. Very likely, they won't have access to a safety deposit box until after you die, and long after you die. Around that time, if they find out that you are dying, they will probably seal that safety deposit box, and funeral plans, anything else you have there, nobody will have that until long after you're buried. Make sure you have those in a place where people have ready access to it and where several of your loved ones know where it is. By the way, in addition to a living will or advanced directive, also a good idea to have a power of attorney. Power of attorney and a durable power of attorney, as we sometimes call it. It's good to have this. What this is, is it authorizes somebody to make decisions and take actions legally on your behalf if you are unable to do so. And usually it'll authorize that person to sign checks, to pay bills, to make decisions concerning your life and so on. And anyway, good idea to have that. And again, make sure that you've given it to somebody you trust and that they and several others know where it can be found. More after the break. <clears throat> Welcome. 
Welcome back to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law and uh, revisiting the subject, what happens after we die. And this, I, I'm, enjoying, I'm enjoying the conversation today, Colonel, just because there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways, a lot of different angles to, to take this in. How to die well. And yes, there are certainly many things involved in dying well. We've already looked at five. We're going to look at five more. We've looked at, first of all, the need to recognize that death can occur at any time, and therefore the need to be ready for it by settling the sin and salvation question, by trusting in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross for our salvation. The third thing we saw then is we need to settle accounts. That is, we need to pay our just debts and to settle those that might be disputable. And if there are people we have wronged or people have wronged us people that we are estranged from reconcile somebody even said once that they thought maybe the first few hours or first few days of heaven the first instructions we'll have up there will be to reconcile with everybody we're in conflict with because god is not going to allow such conditions to continue in heaven and so if we get those straightened out down here we won't have to do so up there Fourth thing we said was to have a last will and testament, including it's a good idea to leave a portion to charity or causes that you believe in, your church, for example. We finished by talking about a living will or advanced directive, and with that, a power of attorney. Now let's look at five more. Next thing I'm going to suggest is to write out your funeral and burial plans, and again, share these with several relatives and friends. Again, I especially emphasize, don't just keep that in a safety deposit box. That will be sealed when you die, and nobody will see it until after your funeral and burial and everything are all done with. So make a plan for what you would like to be said at your funeral. I do a lot of funerals as a pastor, and sometimes I do with people that they have planned out everything in advance. They know exactly who they want to speak and pretty much what they would like to have said and so on. But I have others where the loved ones gather and we talk about the funeral, and they have no idea. Well... Did your father, did he have any special hymns that you think you would like to have us sing? Hymns? I never thought about that. Let's see. I think he, I think he liked the old rugged, rugged cross. Well, how about Bible verses? Are there any special verses of the scripture that we should stress? Do you have any stories about your father that you'd like me to tell or that you'd like to tell? And... I have people sometimes that would like me to do the entire funeral and they take no active role in it at all. I have others who want to take a very active role themselves and want to speak at their loved one's funeral. There's no right and wrong about that. Either way is fine with me. It's just good to get all that settled in advance rather than having to make those decisions right at a time when people are not well-equipped emotionally to make them. So... Write out your plans, what you would like to be said in your funeral. In fact, probably a good idea not only write out your funeral. Commonly, we 
have an obituary that's put into the paper and, and many times that obituary will be read at the funeral. I did hear about a lady one time whose husband had died and somebody said, well, you know, you can have an obituary for, for, the, for the paper. Don't you think you should write, Ron? Well, yeah, I guess I should. Okay, just write this. Bill died. Well, you know, you, you get five, at least you get five words free in that obituary. The first five words are free. <laughs> oh, okay. Bill died. Vote for sale. <laughs> but you might want to write out your obituary. There may be things that you would like to be remembered for that whoever preaches your funeral may not even be aware of. And stress what things you would like to be in the obituary and where that obituary should be sent, the newspapers of various places that you've lived, organizations like the American Legion or Military Officers Association of America, other groups like this that you belong to that often will list deceased members. And so, and your the college, high school you attended, so send that obituary to these various places so that they're aware of it and they can recognize the, the death. And what I mean to say is when I say send them, your children may not know where to send these. So have a listing there along with your funeral plans and with your obituary of places where that obituary should be sent. Somebody's talked about life in a box. And it's a good idea just to have a box or a good file somewhere. And if you have a secure box somewhere, you know, a strong box somewhere that is fireproof in the house, good idea to keep all this. But to have one box where you keep a lot of these documents, your will, your funeral plans, your advance directive, your power of attorney, and obituary, other things like this, also listing your savings accounts and checking accounts by number, banks, other institutions, to have all this listed out somewhere where people know right where to go, where they can get it. Now, when we talk about funeral plans, I'm gonna talk about something that's a little sensitive. I'm gonna talk about burial versus cremation. And some churches have come to accept cremation as a valid thing to do. I know the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints discourages cremation. And as a conservative Lutheran, that is my position as well. One of my fine Lutheran friends who passed away just a few months ago, Dr. Alvin Schmidt, wrote a book titled Ashes to Ashes or Dust to Dust, in which he presents reasons for burial rather than cremation. One of the reasons is that we look forward to a resurrection. That body is going to be resurrected someday. Now, please don't misunderstand me when I say this. God can resurrect a cremated body. He can, recommend, he can resurrect a body that was burned at the stake, a body that was burned in a house fire. He can resurrect a body that was lost at sea, a body that was eaten by animals or even cannibalized. God can resurrect a cremated body. So it's not a matter of that. It's not a matter of salvation. 
Rather, it is a matter of the statement that we make. It's been very well said that cremation defies God to resurrect the body. Christian burial defies the devil and the earth to hold the body. It's the statement that you make. That's one of the reasons that although cremation was very common in the ancient world, the Jews absolutely forbade cremation. And I personally do not recommend cremation. I recommend Christian burial. But again, I have not made that an issue when I, I've done funerals for people whose bodies have been cremated. And I'll simply say that would not have been my choice, but it wasn't my decision to make. But that would be my recommendation. Now a seventh point. Write your life story. It doesn't have to be published as a formal autobiography, although there's nothing wrong with that. My brother wrote an autobiography. He was 14 years older than me. I wrote to him jokingly that, well, I should write an autobiography, but who would I write it about? And I say, that is kind of a joke because really an autobiography, when you're writing one, it's kind of like a voyage of self-discovery. You think back through the events in your life and you think of the things that influenced you and sparked your interest in a certain thing and where that led and so on you will see so many connections as you write that autobiography. But your children would like to know something about you, and my brother and I, our autobiographies, and mine is still in progress, seems like I get it almost up to date, and then I get busy on other things, and then go back to it, and I'm a little older, so there's more time, more life to write about. That Ben Franklin once said that. He said he wrote his autobiography in his 60s because he figured that he was just about finished living. And then when he lived into his 70s, he decided he had to revise it. And when he lived into his 80s, he had to revise it again. Well, when you have electronic writing, when you can write it on computer, of course, it's a lot easier to make revisions than when you have to do it all pen and ink like Ben Franklin did or using a printer and so on. But... Anyway, your children are going to want to know something about you. And as I say, my brother and I, we wrote our autobiographies somewhat differently. He is more talking about the specific facts that occurred at various times of his life, he even knows the names of people that he participated in high school debate tournaments against and so on. Mine is a little more along the lines of ideas. Where did this idea develop? Where did my interest in the Vikings develop and things like that and tracing things in that way? So both of them are good ways and it's good to have a combination of both, but your children are going to want to know those things about you as are your grandchildren. One thing we find is fairly common, by the way, is that people know a great deal about their parents, quite a bit about their grandparents, maybe a little bit about their great-grandparents, but most people know nothing about their ancestors prior to their great-grandparents. I'm kind of that way. My great-grandparents came over from Norway, and I know quite a bit about them. Before that, I have names and dates going back into the 1600s, but 
other than names and dates, and in some cases where they lived, I know nothing about them. But write an autobiography, even a short one, so that your great-great-grandchildren, as they're looking back in their ancestry, they'll not just know your name and dates, but they'll know something about who you are, what you stood for, what contributions you made to the family and to the world. An eighth point I'm going to make here is plan your tombstone. One of the things that I think is a real mistake for people, and people do this all the time, is when it comes time for a funeral, people will spend thousands upon thousands of dollars on an expensive casket that a few hours after the funeral, nobody is ever going to see again. And then they just have a plain gravestone that just has a name and dates and nothing more. Think about those dates, 1934 to 2026, let's say, that little dash in between. It's the little dash in between that's all important. What happened then? I suggest you design your tombstone as something that says something about you, perhaps put a Bible verse on it or a symbol like a cross. It's so easy to do etchings on tombstones today in ways that wouldn't have been done maybe a couple of decades ago, but to etch on your tombstone, maybe a portrait of you and your spouse, and maybe write on the tombstone, like John Eidsmo, son of Russell and, Russell and Beulah, husband of Marlene, parents of David, Kirsten, and Justin, and have that connection on there. So plan your tombstone. And I'd say it's better to invest a little more in a tombstone that makes a statement and a little less than a casket that nobody's going to see a few hours after the funeral. Ninth point that I would make here is to recognize that others will observe you and will observe your faith during the dying process. Patrick Henry, I think, is a very good example of this. And... I love the way Patrick Henry Fontaine, his grandson, who was present at his death and wrote a biography of Patrick Henry. I love the way he describes Patrick Henry's death. He says, and this is the year 1799, at which time Henry was 63 years old. He had an intestinal ailment. He was surrounded by his family. And Patrick Henry Fontaine says, on June 6th, all other remedies having failed, Dr. Cable proceeded to administer him a dose of liquid mercury. Taking the vial into his hand and looking at it for a moment, the dying man said, I suppose, doctor, this is your last will and this is your last resort. The doctor replied, I'm sorry to say, Governor, that it is. Acute inflammation of the intestines has already taken place. What will be the effect of this medicine? Asked Henry. It will give you immediate relief. Or the kind-hearted doctor cannot finish the sentence. His patient took up the word, you mean, doctor, that it will give relief or prove fatal immediately? The doctor answered, you can live only a very short time without it, and it may possibly relieve you. 
Then Patrick Henry said, Excuse me, doctor, for a few moments, and drawing over his eyes a silken cap which he usually wore, and still holding the vial in his hand, he prayed, in clear words, a simple childlike prayer for his family, for his country, and for his own soul, then in the presence of death. Afterward, in perfect calm, he swallowed the medicine. Dr. Cable, who greatly loved him, went out on the lawn, and in his grief threw himself down on the earth under one of the trees, weeping bitterly. Soon, when he had sufficiently mastered himself, the doctor came back to his patient, whom he found calmly watching the congealing of the blood under his fingernails, and speaking words of love and peace to his family, who were weeping around his chair. Among other things, he told them that he was thankful for that goodness of God, which, having blessed him all his life, was then permitting him to die without pain. Finally, fixing his eyes with much tenderness on his dear friend, Dr. Cable, with whom he had formerly held many arguments respecting Christianity, he asked the doctor to observe how great a reality and benefit the Christian religion was to a man about to die. And after Patrick Henry had spoken to his beloved physician those few words, in praise of something which, having never failed him in all his life before, did not then fail him in his very last need of it, he continued to breathe very softly for some moments, after which they who were looking upon him saw that his life had departed. Interestingly enough, his last words, though, are found in his last will and testament, and he was a wealthy man, but he said, This is all the inheritance I can give to my dear family. The religion of Christ can give them one which will make them rich indeed. But just as Dr. Cable, an unbeliever, was watching Patrick Henry as he died, so, as we die, others are going to be watching us. Some who need confirmation that our faith is genuine, some who may be skeptical about Christianity itself, and who may look upon us and wonder, well, this man claims to be a Christian. Let's see if Christianity really helps him when he dies. Your death will be something that others will observe during that dying process. And then, as a tenth point, Trust God to be with you in death as well as in life. I've heard people say, I'm not really afraid of death, but I am afraid of dying. It could be very, very painful. But in James chapter 4 and verse 6, we read the words, He giveth more grace, grace that is needed. In Deuteronomy 33, 25, As thy days, so shall thy strength be. As those words in the first stanza of that great hymn, Come, come, ye, ye saints. Grace shall be as your day. God gives dying grace. He gives you the strength, gives you the extra grace there as you die. You have to take hold of that grace. Not everybody is going to die a death in grace. Some are going to die in agony. You have to take hold of the grace that God offers to you, but he offers you not only living grace, not only saving grace, but dying grace as well. Whatever pain you're going to have to go through in death, and with modern medicine, of course, so much of that pain can be eliminated, not all of it, but God will give you the grace 
perseverance. And God is going to use the time of your death. Perhaps he'll use it to teach others. Perhaps to teach you what you need to know and to prepare you for eternity. I'm thinking again of that teenage girl that in our churches we had been praying for and God answered our prayers, didn't answer them the way we were hoping he would answer, but it was an answer nevertheless. God took her home to be with himself. But the question we wonder is, for years, as she was racked with pain and taken from one hospital to another, sometime in Washington State, sometime in Texas, sometime elsewhere, but all over the country to get treated and up and down roller coaster seemed like now she's okay and no now she's at death's door again and during all of this time she is suffering immensely but during all of this time god is teaching her some things preparing her to be ready to be with him not only that but think of the churches and she didn't even attend our church. She attended a different church, and yet we were praying for her. So many other the rural churches in the area were praying for that girl. Think how God used her as a witness to so many people at the time of his death, or at the time of her death, and in all those years before. God has had a reason. It's not always that we understand what the reason is. But God had a reason for dragging her life on like this. And it was a reason that was for her good, for his glory, and for our benefit as well. John Calvin put it like this. Let us consider this settled, that no one has made progress in the school of Christ who does not joyfully await the day of death and final resurrection. Are you joyfully awaiting your death? Well, not many of us would say we're joyfully awaiting it. And yet, in a sense, we should be. Because that will be the culmination of our life. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, whom some call the Prince of Preachers, put it like this. Depend on it. Your dying hour will be the best hour you have ever known. Your last moment will be your richest moment. Better than the day of your birth will be the day of your death. It shall be the beginning of heaven, the rising of a sun that shall go no more down forever. Death may be instantaneous. It may be quick. It may be drawn out. It may be painless or it may be painful. God will give you the death that you need and he will prepare you through that death to be with him forever. And he will give you the grace that you need, dying grace, to go through that death. So ask God to show you how your death will glorify him, edify others, and prepare him for eternity. Well, we've gone through quite a series on death. I certainly hope that... As we've gone through this series, we have helped to prepare people. Prepare people, first of all, by knowing Christ. But second, making the preparations that we may die well. 
Well, I'm looking forward to uh, where we go from here. I feel like we've uh, we've covered some of the harder stuff. What uh, what do you anticipate us uh, touching on here in the in the coming weeks, uh, Colonel? Well, we have quite a few court cases that we at the foundation are working on, and I would like to share those with us. And I thought a couple times if the message finished in time, we would do so, but it hasn't. So we'll talk about some of those, and then we may go back into the Ten Commandments again. And it may be time to revisit the Basic Institute of Summary of the Constitution itself. 